Psalm 33, we're going to use this as kind of a jumping off point, sort of a, an outline for the sermon this morning. My goal isn't to preach every single passage in Psalm 33, go word by word, but to use it as, as a, a helpful outline for a big picture. And to help us grasp that big picture, imagine a sailing ship back in the olden days, you know, the great British fleet and and the times of the huge sailing vessels, and you're sailing from the old world to the new world. And the captain decides he's got a plan to be gracious to his crew. They're going to get four hours on, on duty, and the rest of the time they get off. Now, I'm pretty sure no captain ever did that, but let's imagine they did. Now, what this would mean is every four hours, a new person would come up and grab the steering wheel of the ship, which I'm pretty sure is called a helm. Is that any sailors in our midst? Is that right? A helm? Okay. I actually look these things up so I don't look too stupid. So, okay, the helm. If Google's right, that's what it's called. So every four hours, somebody gets up. Now, what would happen if every four hours that person grabbed that wheel and thought, where do I want to go? Ah, Bermuda looks nice this time of year. Let's go that way. Four hours later, somebody else gets up. I've always wanted to see an iceberg. Let's go this way. What if somebody gets up and says, I know where we're supposed to go. You know, we've got a destination in the new world, but I want to take this route. And so they turn that way. It looks a little nicer, a little warmer. Somebody else gets up and says, no, the, the, the weather's better up here. Let's go this way instead. And every four hours, they're changing directions and maybe even changing destinations. What is going to happen? I think if the ship is lucky, they'll just go in circles. If they're not lucky, they'll probably crash somewhere or get totally and utterly lost because every new shift that comes up would not know where the person before them was even going, let alone how to get there. We're in a sermon series on biblical wisdom called On Track. How do we make good decisions in a culture that is rapidly changing? How do we decide each and every day which direction we're going to go? How do we take each small decision as they come to us, some big, some small, but how do we take each individual decision and weigh it in light of something more than just what we feel like, more than just what we want in that moment, or is that even good enough? How do we do that? So we're looking at biblical wisdom. How do we respond and trust in God, respond to Him and trust in Him each and every day and follow His plan? So we started three weeks ago, two weeks ago I think it's been, uh, we started by looking at what's a proper attitude toward God. We looked at the fear of the Lord. We looked at living in humility between us and God, acknowledging that He is God and we are not. I think that's really at the heart of what it means to fear the Lord. And I believe, because the Bible says so, that's the beginning of wisdom. And then last week, we looked at God's great wisdom and really just the greatness of God overall. And we walked through some passages about the awesome power of our Lord, how he not only created all things, he knows all things, he is powerful and sovereign over all things, which leads us then to say, does it make sense for us to come up with our own ideas? Or does it make more sense to trust in a God who is so much greater than us? Biblical wisdom. And so today, we're going to look at God's wise plan in part three. God has a plan for you and for all things. 
And so we don't wake up every morning and grab the wheel of our ship and say, which way do I want to go today? We say, where is God going? How do I trust him and follow him in that? In the first sermon of the series, I suggested that wisdom is thinking and living correctly in relationship with God. Well, if you're in a relationship with somebody, you should want to know what that person desires, right? You should be interested in the things that are important to that person. If I want to show love to my wife, but completely ignore everything that she wants, I'm not going to be a very good husband, am I? You know, it's the husband that on Mother's Day or or on your wife's birthday comes home and says, hey, honey, I bought you this beautiful table saw, and I know it'll be really nice for you. We'll go right next to the other three gifts I bought you last year. You know, that's not what she, maybe it is what she wants in your family. I don't know. (laughs) Thinking, what's that? (laughs) Thinking and living correctly in relationship with God. So here in Psalm 33, like so many of the other Psalms, we have a Psalm that kind of walks through a bit of history. The Psalms are filled with these reminders of who God is and what he's done over a period of time. And I love this because I believe God wanted his people to be reminded time after time after time the big picture of what he is doing in history. We get so narrowly focused. What is God's will for my life right now? How do I make this decision right now? And that's good. We need to think about those things, right? but we need to be able to put it in a context of God's overall plan. God's wise plan of which every generation, each shift is a part and needs to say, where is God going and how do we steer the ship according to his wisdom? So let's start in Psalm 33. We're going to start in 1 through 5 and look at God's plan for God's glory Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. The psalm begins with worship. Because when we come to God and we want to understand his big picture, and we're about to enter into sort of a reciting of that big picture, which is what this psalm is, we need to understand worship. Look at that phrase there, sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It doesn't say sing if you feel like it. It doesn't say sing if you like the song. It doesn't say sing if it's the song you came up with or, or you grew up with. It says sing, sing joyfully. Why? Because God is always the same person doing the same thing. There's always a reason to respond in worship to who God is. I think sometimes as Christians we come into a worship service and we think, oh, do I like the band? Do they pick songs that I like? Oh, it's not really going the way I want it. I'm just kind of worship like this today. Our worship should not be dictated by how things are going up here. It should not be dictated by the songs we see up here. Our worship should be dictated by who God is and what he's done. Always and forever. Sing joyfully to the Lord. We need to start with worship. 
And then in verse 4 it says, For the word of the Lord is right and true. And this concept of God's word is powerful throughout Scripture. And pops up a couple more places in this psalm. Verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. Verse 9, For he spoke and it came to be. Verse 11, But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. Throughout Scripture, when it talks about the word of the Lord, it's more than just God speaking. It is that. But it's God's communication of his wisdom his plan, and his purpose. There's a weightiness to what God says. So what is God's ultimate plan? I'll put some scriptures up here so you're not flipping through your Bibles too much, but you're welcome to turn there. Psalm 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, obviously, we're jumping into a a text there. But look at what it says about these people that he's talking about. God says, I created them for my glory. He formed them and made them. Everything is created for God's glory. In fact, if we're going to understand the big picture of God's plan, we have to understand the purpose of God's glory. Look at Isaiah 48.11. He's talking about something he's going to do, and specifically a, a time in Israel's history when God is at work. And he says why he's doing this. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. God's purpose is for God's glory. Now, if I stood up here and said, you know, my purpose, my, my grand goal as a pastor is for my own glory, I hope you would question that. Okay? I I hope at some point you would turn around and walk out. Because that's a problem. That's a huge problem. Why? Why is it a problem for me to say my overall purpose of life or ministry is my own glory? Well, one, because I'm not always right. Right? Amen? It's okay. Yeah. My wife. My wife's the loudest one. That's right. Don't tell my kids. I'm not always right. I make mistakes. I'm a sinner. I mess up. I don't think correctly about some things. But So I make mistakes and I mess up and I'm not always right, but there's another reason. To say that I'm going to do what I do for my own glory is to say that I'm the most important person. And that's not true. I'm not the most important person. And I need to remind myself of that constantly. I am not the most important person. So we kind of get set off a little bit, as we should, when somebody acts for their own glory. But now we come to God. We say, wait a minute, that's, that's not right. I mean, he shouldn't act for his own glory. God should be humble. <laughs> Why should God be humble? Does God ever make mistakes? No. Does God need to remember that he's not the most important person in the room? Well, no, actually, just the opposite. God needs to remember, and he does, that he's always the most important person in the room. See, our standards of humility and living for our own glory don't apply to God. God's greatest aim is to keep the most important thing as the number one priority in everything he does, and the most important thing in all the universe is the glory of God. We are created for his glory. So if we're going to understand God's plan, 
and we're going to come to Scripture and read Scripture in light of what God is doing, we've got to start with an understanding of His glory. And then we come to creation, God's plan initiated. Look at verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God's plan is initiated. God didn't wake up one day and say, hmm, I think I'll try to just create something and see what it turns out to be. I think I'll just try this. Let's start with some waters and a little bit of light and dark. And, oh, let's try this over here and a couple, couple little happy trees over here. That's not the way that God created the world. He had a plan and a purpose. And the reminders throughout scriptures of, of God's creation is a reminder to us. He has a purpose for everything that he does. God's purpose is for us to worship him. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. All creation worships. Whether it wants to or not, honestly. The rock doesn't wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to stand up today and sing, and I'm going to sing out to, to my Lord and my God. I'm going to make music. I mean, what kind of music is a rock going to make? Probably rock music. But, <laughs> sorry. It went over very poorly in the first service. So thank you very much for laughing at my pathetic humor. The rock doesn't have a choice. The trees don't have a choice. The mountains don't have a choice. The the birds, the deer, all of it, it doesn't have a choice. It worships because it was created to worship. It's like a painting. You look at the painting, and if it's a good painting, which would not be one that I did, if it was a good painting, you would say, there is a good artist behind that painting. That's glory. That's worship. It's saying, I can see in what was created something good about the Creator. All of the world declares the glory of God. But see, we're different. Not in that we weren't made for worship. No, in fact, we were even more made for worship. Genesis 1, verses, uh, verse 26, actually verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creation, the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's so much that we can talk about. And we spent uh, my Sunday school class speaking a lot about these verses. And what does it mean to be created in the image of God? There's a lot we can talk about there. But part of it is we were created to reflect who God is. When you look at an image, it is telling you about something that it is an image of. When people look at us, they are to see a reflection of the glory of God. We are created for worship. One of the fundamental differences between us and all the rest of creation is we actually have a choice. Now, in one sense, my very body, my existence, the fact that I can breathe in my lungs and I can make decisions, in one sense, like a painting, it declares the glory of God. Whether I am an atheist or a Christian, I am actually bringing glory to God, whether I want to or not. But in another sense, I have choices. 
I get to wake up in the morning and say, who am I going to serve? Am I going to live for myself or am I going to live for God? What am I going to demonstrate in my life, my own ideas or God's ideas? I have choices whether or not to live for God's glory. Adam and Eve had choices. And they chose to live for their own glory, for their own standard of right and wrong. Another thing we see in Scripture is that creation is a place of worship. Genesis 1 is is not only a telling of the days of creation, and we've looked at this before in the Genesis series, but scholars have looked at the language and the way this is laid out, and they say, you know, there's a lot here that is reminiscent of other ancient Near Eastern texts and how temples were set up, the description of the setting up and the purpose of the temple. They say, why? Why in the account of creation would God use that language to describe the creation of the world? Because the world is a place of worship. We were created to be here on this earth to worship God. If you study the usage of the heavens and the earth, which we've done a few times in this church throughout Scripture, you see that it's used over and over as heaven is the place of God's throne and earth is the place that we meet with God and worship Him. Beyond that, the theme of God being with us and us us worshiping Him comes up again and again. It's no mistake that after God saves his people from Egypt, brings them out of slavery and into the desert, and he sits them down and says, okay, now there's some some things we need to talk about. One of the first things he describes to them is the setting up of the tabernacle. He says, there in that tabernacle is where I will dwell among you. And the Bible ends with a description of the new heavens and the new earth. And in Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth are described as a city coming down from heaven. And the size or the shape of the city is a perfect cube that has got to be the weirdest city on the face of the earth. Why does God use that strange language to describe the new heavens and the new earth? Because there's another place in Scripture where a perfect cube is used. It's the Holy of Holies, the very dwelling place of God. And the imagery is so profound God created this world to dwell among us so that we could worship him. But then in Revelation 22, a different metaphor is used. And he changes from a city, and he describes the new heavens and the new earth as a garden. And images very reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, it describes the recreation of the earth. And that refrain at the end of Revelation, now my dwelling will be with my people. So powerful. We are created for worship. But something happened. A threat came in. Look at verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 33. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of His heart through all generations. Now look, I'm not trying to read into this and say this is talking about the fall of Adam and Eve, okay? But it is describing something that relates to that. Because here we have God's great purpose of creation to live among us and for us to reflect and worship Him and live in His perfect presence. And then it's saying, but God thwarts our plans. So there's become a difference between God's plans and ours. Why? If this is the way God created the world, why would we ever want to go our own way? Because we live in a world that has been so messed up and infected by sin that our plans are not God's plans. Adam and Eve 
made a choice. In Genesis chapter 3, God told them to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by taking of that fruit, it wasn't just about eating a fruit. It wasn't failing a test. It wasn't even just breaking a law. It was overstepping a boundary of their very creation. They did not have the right to put themselves on the throne and say, we will determine good and evil. That was God's job. It was always God's job and is always to be God's job. It is not for humans to take. But they took it. And the effects of the fall are profound. Instead of seeking God's glory, we constantly seek our own glory. Instead of each one of us grabbing the wheel of our own ship and and following God for His glory and declaring His praises, we take it and we turn it whichever way we want. And we wonder why we run into each other constantly. Because we've lost the direction. There's a threat to God's plan. The interesting thing is, as grave as that threat is, the Bible very clearly says God knew it was coming. He always knew it was coming. He had a plan all along. Revelation 13.8 says about Christ, the Lamb, that He was crucified or slain before the foundation of of the world. Before God created anything and the things that He created rose up and rebelled against Him, He had a plan to send His Son, Jesus, because He knew what was going to happen. God made a choice when He created you and me. Because in the moment of creating us, in order to carry out His plan, He destined His Son to death. He made a choice. I will create these people knowing they rebel against me. But I'll send my son to die for them. And so ultimately the plan was never really threatened because God knew it all along. Now let's look at the plan renewed. Verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. The Israelites, as you can imagine, thought a great deal about why God chose them to be his people. Their identity as a people was not just about their history or their culture or their beliefs. It was about the truth, as described in Scripture, that in this rebellious, sin-scarred world, God reached into history and he made a renewed relationship with a guy named Abraham. And he said, you and your offspring, you're going to be my people. I'm going to live with you. I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to teach you about myself. And you're going to be a light to all the nations. God chose a people. God reaches out to establish a relationship in this world because we can't do it. We're so busy steering our own ships and going our own ways and thinking that we've got it all together. And God says, no, 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 I'm going to show you who I am. And so much of the Old Testament is about that truth. God reaching into history and teaching people who he is. Is. And he did it through the tabernacle. 
He dwelt among them and he said, look, for me to live among you, you got to know something about holiness. You got to know something about purity. You got to know something about sacrifice for sin to pay for sin. That's why so much of the Israelite sacrificial system existed was so that God could dwell in their midst without being wiped out. He lived among them. And then look at John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word, speaking of Jesus Christ, became flesh and made His dwelling. He tabernacled. That's what the Greek word is there. He tabernacled among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, this book, from beginning to end, is a testimony of how God loves you and has pursued you in this sinful world and even in your own sinful life. He has reached into history, into your history, and says, I want you to know me. Because I have a plan to be with you. But you see, simply renewing the relationship wasn't enough. Contemporary Christians like to stop here. Oh, God just loves you and he just wants to be with you and and, and he's done all this stuff to be with you. So let's just get everybody in church and we can all just be together and be the community of faith and be the community of God's people. But there's a problem. Remember that threat? Unless sin is dealt with, This world will never fulfill the purpose. We will never fulfill the purpose for which we have been created. So we need to look at God's plan accomplished. Look at verses 16 through 19. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. You might be saying, wait a minute, I thought you were talking about salvation, and I'm pretty sure you're going to talk about Jesus in a second here. I mean, come on, what is this about horses and armies and kings? See, in that time period, the people had this constant threat from the surrounding nations. Especially the leadership, they had to make choices each and every day. What is going to save us? And so often they would say, well, if we can get a greater army, if we can have more military strength, we can make something of ourselves. We will establish ourselves in this world and we'll be okay. And God constantly told them, look, it's okay to have an army, but you need to understand your salvation doesn't come from that. See, we need to read this as it's tempting to trust in what we can do to save us. That's how I read this passage. And then the Lord says, that it is He who saves us. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him. It's those who trust Him, those who acknowledge Him, on those whose hope is in His unfailing love. In the Old Testament, they trusted that God would save. Their activities, the sacrifices, the, the temple and the tabernacle activities, all of that was an outward action of trusting in who God is. The Bible is very clear that those who understood God's word knew those actions never saved them. Never. They were expressions of their trust in the God who saves. In the New Testament, we trust in the law fulfiller and the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 says, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. 
to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. There's the plan fulfilled. It's Jesus Christ that is the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan. Now here's the interesting thing. When did that happen? When was Christ crucified? When was this plan fulfilled? When is victory declared? Because I'm looking around at a world saying, this is pretty messed up. I don't see the victory. But see, Jesus died on the cross over 2,000 years ago. A powerful truth for us as Christians is to understand the victory has already come. God's plan has already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're not trusting in something that maybe, possibly, someday might happen. No, no, it's already been done. We get to look back on what God has done. The world is waiting, and God is waiting for that to be fully seen and experienced. God is waiting in mercy, because God's plan requires the removal of all sin from this world. Otherwise, there will be no ongoing worship and joy and peace in this world. And there's two ways that that sin gets removed. One is you can trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And your sin gets put on Jesus and he died in your place and it's gone. Or, when Christ comes back and he removes all sin from the world, those who haven't trusted in Christ will be removed as well. That's a harsh, harsh truth. But please hear me, if God doesn't do that, then what we have right now in the world with all of the anger and bitterness and hatred and murder and sin, all of that stays. But in His mercy, God sent His Son and is waiting, saying, come, know me, know my plan, know the salvation that I give you, which leads us to our response and our hope. Look at verses 20 through 21, or through 22. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. He says we wait in hope. Waiting is not sitting around twiddling our thumbs. Waiting is not saying, look, I've got my ticket into heaven and one day I'm out of here and I don't care what happens to this world. Waiting is not sitting around saying, it doesn't matter what's going on in my life or in this world. It doesn't matter. I'm just waiting for Jesus. It's not forming little holy huddles and putting our heads down and just saying, I know the world's a mess, but there's nothing we can do about it. Waiting in Scripture always includes faithful obedience. It is a very active waiting. It is understanding that God is God and we are not. And there are things we can't do. We cannot fix the world. It's true. We can't. But our obedience can display the glory of the one who can. You see the difference? People need to see who God is. And he's put us in this place at this time that we could reflect his glory through our trust and our hope in him. We wait in hope. Hope is trusting in something with certainty and living accordingly. It's not wishful thinking. Maybe, possibly, someday Christ is going to come back. Hope is saying, I know this is truth. Jesus Christ is coming back. And I will live accordingly. 
We have a present hope that nothing in our lives right now is beyond God's ability. He's at work right now in whatever you're going through. You need to cling to that hope. We have a future hope that what we're experiencing right now is not the end. And so we, as verse 21 says, we rejoice and we trust in verse 22 because God's love is unfailing. Isaiah 46.10 says, I, speaking of God, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Each one of us has a life to live. You have choices to make. Your life and your choices are much greater than just some guy getting up at the steering wheel of a ship for four hours. Your choices matter. My choices matter. You see, God created us to be part of something so much greater than ourselves. Trusting in God's plan and God's purpose does not make you less important. It actually makes you more important. Because God says, I want you to be a part of my plan. And I will be with you and work through you. If wisdom is thinking and living correctly in relationship with God, we must know God. And we must know His plan. And this book right here, Genesis to Revelation, is a testimony of God's desire to be known and for us to know His plan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, it's easy to get caught up in our day-to-day affairs. And I don't say that to belittle what we go through. I know there are people right here, right now, struggling with big things in their lives. But God, I believe a bigger view of who you are and what you're doing and your great plan for all eternity puts those things in perspective. It it helps us to give them both the worth but also the the understanding that they deserve, that they, they are just something, a part of your plan. And if we can trust you and trust your great plan from beginning to end, we will better know how to act when things seem to be falling apart. And God, I believe this world so desperately needs to see Christians trusting your great plan. Because by seeing that in our lives, they must inevitably be pointed to Jesus Christ, the culmination and fulfiller of your great plan. And so may we trust in your wise plan and live that out every day of our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.